Well, as we continue on this study regarding God's good design, God making us male and female, God establishing the family. Today we're going to talk about community, and next week about community with specific application to marriage. We need to underscore primary truths. Primary truth being God is and God has spoken. Don't forget primary truths. The story goes that a woman bought a very exotic, expensive parrot, took the parrot home, came back the next day, and she said to the shop owner, this parrot hasn't said a word. And he said, well, you need to buy a mirror. Put a mirror in the cage, and the parrot will talk to itself. So she bought a mirror. She put it in the cage. She came back the next day, said, still hasn't spoken. Not a word, not a peep. So well, you need to get a swing. Swings back and forth, mirror, he'll speak. She did it. Came back the next day, still hasn't spoken. So you need to get a ladder. You know, to climb up, swings, and then you'll start talking. And so she did that. Two days later, she came in with her cage, with her expensive parrot, with her slide, with her mirror, with her swing. And she said, look, he's dead. And she said, I am so sorry. He said, did he ever speak? Did he ever say anything? She said, yes, the only thing he ever said was, do they sell birdseed down at the the store? (laughs) Um, We can easily forget the basics. The basic is God is, God has spoken. We speak, we work, and we minister out of a foundation, out of God's supply in our lives. There's a World War II group called the Seabees, part of the U.S. Navy. And there's a recent book published by a man named Paul Kennedy that says, Engineers of Victory. In World War II, he talks about the Seabees in the Pacific Theater built all these airstrips and installed all this con- these containers for fuel so that the, the, the Allies could make their steady progression against the Japanese and the Japanese Empire. And he said in World War II, this is, his, his thesis is that these engineers really, in a very large way, won the war. And we forget them. We just think that these troops just showed up and fought at Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal. But he said they, they did the following. They built 111 major airstrips and 441 piers and tanks for the storage of 100 millions of gallons of fuel and housing for 1.5 million men and hospitals for 70,000 patients. He said the CBs, because of the engineers of victory. When I read that, I thought about the little term in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17. Of course, verse 16 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. And the word thoroughly equipped there means to be laden with provision for a long journey. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we want to be thoroughly equipped and have provision for the long journey of life, we do so by remembering God is and God has spoken. And so we come to this passage that deals with companionship in general and a particular type of companionship or community in particular marriage. Listen to verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Stop. God looked at Adam in paradise. It was ideal. Sin has not entered the human race. And God says, it is not good. 
for the man to be alone. In other words, there's a cry for community, for men and women from the happy land of the Trinitarian God who is forever blessed. Amen. God has always been in fellowship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God says from the land of the Trinity, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's a cry for community. You and I were made for fellowship, for relationship. We were made for relationship. In the 1980s, when I first was married, there was a show on TV called Magnum P.I. Some of you remember it. Magnum P.I. started Tom Selleck. He was a guy living in Hawaii. And every time the show began, he started with this statement. It's another perfect day in paradise. As they, the camera panned the Hawaiian Islands. And Magnum lived in this, the house of a very wealthy man. And he drove a Ferrari. And Magnum, as you, the show unfolded, had three buddies, really bosom buddies. One started out as his nemesis, a man named Jonathan Higgins, who was a retired master sergeant from the British Army and was very proper. And Magnum was anything but. But they, you saw how their relationship became very endearing through the eight seasons Magnum was on. And he had two other buddies that were there for the whole eight seasons. Rick, uh, who, who was a, a, a former Vietnam vet friend, and TJ, who flew helicopters, Vietnam vet. And they were just great friends. And, and as you watch the show, you know, the Ferrari and all that kind of stuff, 6'4", you know, there's some good things going on there. The, the issue was... The reason it was another day in paradise was not primarily Hawaii. It was his men. It was his friends. I mean, they could have been living in Walterboro. Well, not really, but I mean, close, something like that. <laughs> but, but, but see, the, 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 the paradise, really, the, the issue for, for, for Magnum P.I. was Jonathan Higgins and Rick and C.J. And, and then right after that, a show came on TV called Cheers, filmed in Boston. It's a bar where you went and you had great relationships. Everybody goes somewhere. What's the, what was the byline? Everybody knows your name. Everybody knows your name. And, and right after that came Seinfeld with all those weird people. But it was a funny show, but it was about community. And then right after that came Friends. The long-running 11 years of Friends, people who are refusing to grow up and drink latte and sit on big couches. But it was about. It was about Friendship. It was about community. And I thought, you know, it's interesting that there, there's, there's a cry in our hearts for community. There's a cry in God's heart for us to have community before center of the human race. Now, one quick word. It's about community. And one quick word to singles. There are a lot of singles here today. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 12 that some people are single for the kingdom's sake. There is a gift for being single. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. The Bible also says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, bracket, a single man, or have the gift of singleness. But each has his own gift from God. One has one kind and one has another. Then he says later in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. I don't know if he's trying to be funny, but it's true, you know. A, a single man has 
time and energy and focus that is not the same if you're married and you have children. I mean, that, but it's all on a single, based upon single gifts. Now, it's interesting, when you study this issue in the church, there was a time in the history of the church, early church, where unbiblically, people said, if you really want to be a superstar on the NBA all-star team, you become celibate. And if you really want to become a superstar, you live in the desert as a celibate person, and you take vows of silence. All of that is unbiblical. And so, but they elevated being single and being celibate, and we got in all kinds of problems. Conversely, Sometimes I, I fear in the church that we married people walk up to our single friends and we don't know what to say. So we say stupid things like, when are you going to get married? I've always thought, told them single people, come up with something just to shock them. Say, well, I would get married, but I've become a Baptist monk. <laughs> There's a new order that we've started. We're being housed down here. We just, we're never going to be married. Or I'm going to become a Baptist nun and sing, how to solve a problem like Maria every day, all day long. You know, that type of thing. You know, don't, there is a gift of singleness. If you are single, rejoice in it. If you have the gift of singleness, rejoice in it. So the first part of verse 18 talks about community in general. Then it talks about a particular community. And God says this, I will make a helper fit for him, or a helper suitable for him. The word here, helper fit, means someone who corresponds to our needs, someone who supplies what is lacking. It's, it's a glorious thing to have a helper fit for your needs. One reason that we're not any more weird than we are is that God let us get married. I mean, think about it. Think of all the rough edges, well, major rough edges that your spouse has helped you walk through. And so what's interesting is, is in the world of entertainment, this concept is, is, is embraced. For example, Rocky won 1976 Academy of the Year Picture of the Year, Academy Award, Picture of the Year. Um, I thought it was a great movie. Kind of went downhill from then. Rocky 25 was not very good at all. But in Rocky 1, there's this man named Rocky Balboa, the Italian stallion. And he's not given to quoting lengthy statements. And he's fallen for a woman named Adrian. Yo, Adrian, remember that? And Adrian, the problem with falling for someone is sometimes they come with a baggage called a family. And Adrian had a brother who you just wanted to hit every time he comes home. Just, his name was Polly. So Polly, Adrian's brother, says to Rocky one day, Rocky, do you like Adrian? Question mark. Rocky says, sure, I like her. Long, long dialogue here. Polly says, what's the attraction? Rocky says, I don't know. She fills gaps. Polly says to Rocky, what's gaps? Rocky, I don't know. She's got gaps. I got gaps. Together we fill gaps. Now seriously, that is exactly what helper fit means. That's a theological statement. It is. <laughs> Rocky, the theologian. But he's got it right. And a few years later, there is a movie called As Good As It Gets, starring Jack Nicholson, who plays an obsessively 
consumed man with obsessive compulsive disorder and he's just a very unlikable person and I mean really unlikable and he meets a waitress and she starts being nice to him and he kind of sort of woos her as much as he can and so they're sitting over dinner one night and he says to her this he says his name is Melvin Udall and he says I've got a really great compliment for you and it's true and she says her name is Carol I'm so afraid you're about to say something so awful and he gives this statement, he says, since I met you, I've started taking my medication. And she says, I don't quite get how that's a compliment to me. And then he says this, you make me want to be a better man. And she says, that may be the best compliment of my life. And I thought, that's marriage. Your spouse should compel you, make you want to be the person God's called you to be. Good theology. So, so it's, I'll make a helper suitable. And we know from the ancient confessions of faith, there are three reasons for marriage. One is mutual benefit and companionship. Two is to have children. And three is for sexual fulfillment. But it's all about a mutual beneficial relationship. And it comes from the overflow of your walk with the Lord or the overflow of worship in this book it's a wonderful book on marriage talk what did you expect he says what do you do in the moments when you aren't attracted to your spouse here's my answer a marriage of love unity and understanding is not rooted in romance it is rooted in worship worship of Christ is your first identity before it is ever your activity you are a worshiper. So everything you think, desire, choose, do, or say is shaped by worship. So the way we treat our spouse is the overflow of understanding the beauty and the greatness of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. If I had to go to one conference on marriage or parenting or anything else, it would be I would go to a conference on how to worship and glory and know the reality of Jesus by the Spirit, through the Word of God, because it's the overflow. Now listen to me. There are many couples here today who have a Christian marriage. You're committed. You're going to be there. You're going to finish. God bless you. I, I want to have a Christ-saturated marriage where prayer permeates the relationship, where, where people talk, think about kingdom initiatives, where they think about how, how they can be used of God in their neighborhood or, or around the world. To be, there's a difference between having a Christian marriage and a Christ-saturated marriage. And I, I want that for us. I want to have Christ-saturated marriages that sing with laughter and sing with joy. See, because when, when, you're, when that happens, it's just, it's, in Proverbs, listen, Proverbs 5 Verse 18 and 19 talks about, talks about the relationship with your wife. It says, let your, your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A graceful doe, a loving deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated or intoxicated with her love. Captivated, intoxicated. And this is an older man writing, you know captivated and you get there because of chapter 5 verse 1 where he says my son be attentive to my wisdom and incline your ear to my understanding then 
you will keep discretion and your lips will guard knowledge. See, it's, it's based upon the pursuit of wisdom and wisdom is fulfilled in Jesus he says in chapter 2, verse 3, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek for it like it's silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You see, the primary thing I do is seek Christ as a husband. I should. Because when that happens, when, when that happens, then, then I don't keep scorecards. You did this, you did that, okay, I'll do this. Well, when that happens, I am forgiving. I'm, I'm quick to seek forgiveness. Well, when that happens, I follow the admonition of James 1. Be, be, be quick to listen. Or excuse me, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because man's anger never brings about the righteous life that God desires. When that happens, I will follow the admonition of Ephesians 4. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let bitterness creep into your relationship with your wife. You see, it's the overflow of worship. Christian marriage, Christ-centered marriage. And then this beautiful, beautiful statement. This is, this is so, listen. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. We're to be creative. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no helper found for him, a helper fit for him. See, I, see God brings all the animals before Adam. And, and every time an animal comes by, you know, there, there, there's an aching in his heart. Oh, I, I don't have anyone. I don't have anyone to be my companion. There's no community for me. I have unbroken fellowship with, with Abba Father. There's no, broken, there's no community for me. And so, no, not found a helper fit for him. So, this is tender. This is beautiful. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. He put him asleep so Adam would not think he had anything to do with this glorious mystery and miracle called a wife. Then it says this. It's one of the most tender phrases in the Bible. And God brought her to the man. And the man says, at last. There's aching, there's longing, there's a deep cry in his heart. At last. Now, this is paradise. Before sin entered, and there is longing. I love marriages. And I get, I get, it's fun to be part of a marriage. But the way we do marriages is very very interesting to me when it comes to bride and the groom so the groom on the night before the wedding after rehearsal dinner he and his buddies get together and they sit up and talk and they play jokes on the bride and keep him up most of the night he may get two or three hours sleep and and which is a really good thing to do because he'll get married the next day 
he can be dead tired. It makes no difference, right? I don't understand that. And then he, they have tee-off time at 9 o'clock the next morning, so they play golf for four hours, so he can not only be hydrated, but get a sunstroke. And he's sunburned, and he shows up at the church three hours before, and all the groomsmen are running around doing this. Meanwhile, the bride is in a bridal chamber, and she's gotten up after a wonderful night's rest on the morning of the wedding, and she's had pedicures and manicures. They've scraped the bunions off her feet. <laughs> and so she has her hair done, makeup done just right. And she's back there with her mother-in-law almost and her mom and her bridesmaids. And every two minutes, someone walk with her and go, I've never seen a more beautiful bride in my life. I mean, it's just, I'm, and, and they're honest. They just have amnesia from that one and the next one. And, and so it's just, and she's just smiling, and they have drinks and refreshment. Meanwhile, the groomsmen are running around doing this, escorting people down, and the groom is in the back of the church in a broom closet. <laughs> I'm sure. And, and he's got to be cloistered because he can't see the bride before she comes down the aisle. Because if she does, if he does, that's bad luck. Let me tell you, after years of doing marriage counseling, the first question I ask is, did you see the bride? <laughs> so seriously, no, he's that bad there by himself. He's sitting by himself, and he's nervous, and he's drumming his fingers, and, the finger, and, and uh, really, he's in a, this, this room where the shades are pulled, and he can't look out. I did a wedding a couple months ago, and I went back there, and the groom's all by himself, and he was nervous, and he was drinking Red Bull. <laughs> and I said, what are you doing? He said, I just want to be awake and alert. I said, well, you're going to be that, man. <laughs> so anyway, go through all of that, and, and then, you know, the, the groom comes in from the side door, and the night before, the wedding director, who's trained by the Nazis, <laughs> says, you stand right here, and if you move, small countries in Central America will blow up. <laughs> so you stand right there. And I come out, and he's, he's nervous, and I always do this. Though the doors open, the bride, her daddy usually, I reach out and grab him by the arm and pull him to the middle of the aisle and says, you've got to see this. It's glorious. Presentation. That's what happens here. God brought her to Adam. And Adam cries out, at last. And then this little paradigm that you've heard a thousand times. The God who speaks says, for this reason a man will leave his mama and his daddy and cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. From that day forward, the primary relationship in his life and her life is one another. And they weave their lives together as they become one flesh. Well, let me make three application statements and, and I've got to do that. Okay, number one. We are called brothers and sisters to holiness in Christ that leads to happiness, not to self-fulfillment in a worldly sense that leads to supposed happiness. But please understand, there's all the difference in the world. Holiness says Christ is preeminent. I will serve, I will care, I will walk, I will love, I will laugh, I will weep as unto the Lord, and that holiness leads to happiness. I believe that. The world says 
You marry someone to fulfill your needs. Now think about two people getting married who are looking for mutual fulfillment only for one another, like two vacuum cleaners trying to suck each other up. That does not lead to happiness. That leads to frustration. That leads to an idealized, unrealistic, silly vision of a relationship. You're called to holiness that leads to happiness. Proverbs 14 says this, verse 26, He who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. The fear of the Lord, or the worship of God, is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. I need to be a worshiper. I need to be a man who glories in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit as I study the Word of God, so that... I can be the man God's calling me. See, holiness leads to happiness in the Lord, fulfillment in the Lord. Very quickly, number two, you married the wrong person. You did. Some of you are young married, you go, what do you mean? Well, just wait a few months. You'll, you'll have a little voice in the back of your mind that says, Mama was right. Mama was right. The reason you married the wrong person is because you married a sinner and you're a sinner. You are. And you're going to struggle with that to the day you die. The little things that previously was, was endearing just gets you down. Start dating somebody and the guy likes pizza and half-pound hamburgers. You decide when you're to have him over for a meal. Maybe he just got engaged and you're going to make this wonderful, delightful meal. And so you have angel hair pasta and organic tomatoes and organic green peppers and mushrooms. And just to heighten the flavor, you squirt lemon juice on it. And you bring it out and you present it like you're a downtown restaurant chef. And your husband-to-be eats it and brags on it. And all the time he's thinking, is this the appetizer? And that's it. And so he says, thank you. And he leaves and he stops at 7-Eleven, gives a bag of little Debbie donuts just so he can make it home. You know? He likes Sports Center and Duck Dynasty and reruns of 24. You like foreign language films with English subtitles that you have a headache after you see the movie. He likes March Madness. You like Spileto. I've worked, guys, I've worked 34, 33 years now trying to convince my, my wife that every one of the 64 games in March Madness is important. <laughs> and she doesn't get it. <laughs> We're different. And as you walk together, you realize that things are not necessarily what you thought they would be. And that's where grace comes in. That's where the reality of Jesus comes into your life. You see, because marriage is to be a lifelong monogamous priority. It's a joy, but it's a commitment. I, I, was, I was thinking about this, and I thought, maybe that my, my, my sermons, little sermonette at a wedding, should really, I should just quote the first address Winston Churchill gave the House of Commons after he became Prime Minister in 1940. Nobody wanted Churchill to be Prime Minister, but they kind of acquiesced and became Prime Minister. 
Everybody in Europe had fallen except France, and unknown to them, the unthinkable would happen. Just a few weeks later, France would fall. And so Churchill goes, he shuffles into the House of Commons on May the 13th, and he stands up and he says this, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Many, many long months of struggle. And later he says, you ask what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs, victory however long and hard the road may be before us. And I thought, you know, in the ups and the down times of life, the down times of life, we sometimes say, well, I'm in the blood, toil, tears, and sweat part of marriage or parenting, but I'm committed to the Lordship of Christ. And so I'm going to have tender resolve. Understand? Tender resolve in my marriage. Resolution. Victory. But I'm oppressed to tenderness. I'm oppressed to being a romantic wooer. But I have tender resolve because this is a lifelong, monogamous, one man, one woman, priority under the Lordship of Christ. That's who we are. Very quickly, Thomas Hooker, I can't go there. Thomas Hooker, one of the co-founders of the state of Connecticut, a Puritan, talked about marriage as an old man. He said, a godly man is the man whose heart is endeared to the woman he loves. He dreams of her in the night, hath her in his eye and apprehension when he awakes, and museth on her as he sits at the table. That's tenderness. It's his tender resolve. You resolve, but you always push to tenderness. You always push towards being intoxicated with her love. And it's the overflow of grace in your heart. It's the overflow of the worship of Jesus. It says there's a difference between having a, a, a marriage that is a Christian marriage and a marriage that's Christ-centered. This book, again, Tripp says this. It says, grace, grace assures you that there is wisdom for the moments when you do not know what to do. Grace gives you hope that when there seems little to be found. Grace enables you to get up and move forward when inside you want to quit and run away. Grace reminds you again and again that you are not alone. It's the overflow. God's good design. Tender resolve. Yes, resolve, but push to tenderness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day, the incredible privilege of singing your praise, of honoring a dear woman who has represented you so well among us, of seeing people baptized as a statement of their faith in Christ. God, work in us. I pray that you'd make us men and women who have a tender resolve in marriage. Let's just have bedrock convictions. And let us stand. But oh God, let us be tender. Let us be tender. Let us be kind. As we see the glory of Christ, may we reflect that in the way we treat uh, our spouses, our kids, our friends. Build rich community in our lives. And may your kingdom come and your will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Thank you very much.